Hello, everybody. Hello, my name is Josh Pollard. I am the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. The year is 1999. I'm 12 years old, and I'm about to attempt a synchronized flying sidekick to break a wooden board while jumping over the mascot of the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes minor league baseball team, and I'm on the grass in front of the home team dugout, and I am terrified. And I'm not scared because of what I have to do. I've done this kick dozens of times. I've broken plenty of wood with this kick. I know how to focus and aim and breathe, and most importantly, how to follow through the board with the kick to make sure it breaks. No, I'm not scared for me. I'm scared for Melissa Steele, my partner, because she has not been doing well with this kick in practice. She has not been focusing. She hasn't been aiming well. She, most importantly, hasn't been following through. You have to follow through. No follow through, no broken board. That's just how it goes. That's how it works. You have to follow through. So as we lined up next to each other on the first baseline in our matching martial arts uniforms, which are super cool, ready to sprint toward what I was sure was going to be one of the most embarrassing moments of my whole life, I look at her and I said, follow through. You just have to follow through. And we start running down the line, and we leap over Tremor the Rallysaurus, and I watch her heel go right through the board, like a knife through butter, perfect focus, perfect follow-through. And we land together at the same time. We are so happy, and I am so relieved until I look at my unbroken board. <laughs> and I know I'm going to have to run back in front of this whole stadium of people, and do it again. And as I start to run back, I hear her yell, hey, follow through this time. <laughs> and this summer, church, we've been studying Joshua, the book of Joshua, and we get to a point today where they face a spiritual, the people of Israel face this spiritual crossroads that we face all the time. And it's the choice between following through on our commitment to being God's people, or if we're going to get sidetracked and be unfocused. We're going to find that in Joshua chapter 22. Now, for time's sake, we're actually going to skip over a large portion of the middle of the book of Joshua, where they separate out the promised land to all the different tribes, and they describe in detail the borders of those different regions that go to each tribe. And I suggest you go ahead and read that on your own, because it's a really great part of the book. But for today's purposes, just take a look at this map we've got here. I've even got a laser beam. You see... That down the middle is the Jordan River, and that is the separation. Uh, the promised land is on the left side of that, on the uh, west, right? And you can see that it is separated up into different tribal territories. I'll show you over here. There's the Jordan River, and those are for the different tribes. Now, you'll notice that on the east side, the right side, there's also some tribes over there. Now, that is because before the 12 tribes all went into the promised land, there were three tribes, well, two and a half technically, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the leaders of the tribe of Manasseh came to Moses, and they said, hey, Moses, we know that the promised land is on that side of the river, but we actually kind of like it over here. Is it okay if we just stay over here? And mo first, Moses was like, no, you're just trying to get out of the battle because we have to go battle with the Canaanites in there and take that promised land. You're just trying to get out of that. And they said, no, 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 we promise we will be the first ones into the promised land, dressed for battle, and we won't even come home until you guys are all settled in, your, in the promised land and everything is good, and only then will we come back to our wives and kids and all our cattle and everything like that. And Moses said, yeah, okay, that works. So we see 
in Joshua chapter 4 that the two and a half, Reuben, Gad, and the half of the tribe of Manasseh, start to fulfill that promise, and they go to battle repeatedly with the nine and a half to uh, help them conquer the promised land. And then we get here today to chapter 22 of the book of Joshua, where they finally get to go home because the promised land has been taken. That's what we're going to read. So you can follow along in Joshua 22. If you need a Bible, you can find one under the seat in front of you, and we're going to be on page 161. So as you find that, take a minute. Did you know the best way, one of the best ways to study a book of the Bible is actually just to read the whole thing from front to back in one sitting? And the book of Joshua takes about an hour and 45 minutes to read from front to back. So tonight, instead of movie night, skip the movie, read the book of Joshua. It's probably more entertaining and better for you anyway. So... There you go. We're going to start at verse 1, chapter 22. It says, Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, Return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. Now before we jump in, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word that you have given us. Uh, We thank you that you have made it so that it's written down that we can remember what you've done in the past to pass your stories on down generation after generation until we get to today, this very generation, these people in this room, where we can read about what you did in the chapter 22 of the book of Joshua. We ask that the truth of who you are and who we are is shown forth through what we learn today so that we can glorify you more with the way we live our lives. And we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we start off here in 22 with Joshua, the the leader of the whole clan of Israel, the whole nation of Israel, commending the two and a half tribes for doing such a great job on following through on the mission that the Lord their God had gave them, as it says. I think that following through on our commitments that we make to God is a very good thing. It's a great thing. And I think telling each other good job sometimes It's also a good thing. Joshua does it here. So I want to take a moment and officially say to all you people who have been doing such a great job serving the Lord, good job. You know, it's been great to be a part of a church where so many of you have really take it seriously, really take serving the Lord seriously with your life. And to get to serve alongside all of you uh, is really awesome. So good job, everybody. Keep it up. We're doing a great work in getting the gospel to the community of Blaine. All right, so let's keep up the good work. Good work. Now, of course, commending is only the first thing that Joshua does in this section. The second thing is that he tells them to be very careful to keep it up. You know, they've been serving amazingly for years and years, and now he tells them in verse 5, Love the Lord your God. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his commands. Hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. And what I find interesting here, or what I wonder about, is that Joshua feels it's necessary to say this at this point. You know, they've, they've left their families behind for what scholars think was between 7 and 14 years to take the promised land. 
And they've been battling and battle after battle alongside their fellow Israelites because of their commitment to the Lord, because they took it so seriously. And now Joshua is telling them, hey, make sure you're committed to the Lord. It's kind of interesting. It's like telling a dentist to go brush your teeth. Of course they're going to brush their teeth. Look at who they are. Of course they're going to be committed to the Lord. Look at who they are. Look at what they've just done. So why does Joshua feel it's necessary for them to be reminded once again to be careful, to be committed to the Lord? I wonder about that. And I think the answer is that past obedience is not necessarily a guarantee for future obedience. The longer we go on as Christ followers, fully committed to this following of Christ, the more we see our sin for what it is, and we hate it, but we're always still able to totally mess this thing up, right? We're always still able to take a left turn and mess everything up. No matter how we've done in the past, we always still have that as a possible future. And so we have to constantly be reminded to stay committed to the Lord. Commitment to the Lord is not a one-time thing. Commitment to the Lord is a daily thing. It's a moment-by-moment, a breath-by-breath type of thing. You have to continually commit yourself to the Lord, to serving Him. You know, there's an old saying when it comes to board-breaking for martial arts demonstrations. The saying is that if you follow through, you'll break the board. If you don't follow through, the board will break you. And it's kind of a literal saying because there's a lot of small bones in your hands or in your foot or you could twist something. And if you don't do it right, you really could injure yourself. You could hurt yourself pretty easily, actually. Boards are hard. Right? So you have to follow through. And I think it's an analogy that works for Christian life because that crossroads where we have to follow through, we have to decide to follow through, always comes at a hard point, a hard spot. You know, if you think about the two and a half tribes, at first, the first crossroads where they had to follow through was that they were leaving their families behind and they were going to battle, to literal battle. And they followed through well on that commitment very commendably, very well. And, but now Joshua knows that they're going back home and they're going to face another very hard point. They're facing a major life change. Major life changes are one of the most difficult times to follow through on your faith. You know, whether it's moving out of your parents' house or it is becoming an empty nester or maybe it's losing a job or maybe it's moving to get a new job. Or maybe it's starting a new relationship or a major breakup. Or maybe it's having a kid or a loss of a loved one. Those major life changes are a huge stumbling box for following through on your faith. They could become choke points sometimes. And I think Joshua knew that they were going to face one of these. You know, the two and a half tribes had been full-time warriors for years and years, and now they're about to become full-time homebodies. That's a big change. You know, and the, the wives and children of the two and a half are about to have warrior man home again. And they've been doing just fine for years and years, getting along, and now a major change is coming. You know, even if it seems like a positive one, it's a change. And change is hard. And he didn't want the two and a half to hit that hard place and be broken and to be pulled to the side, but to stay focused on their commitment to the Lord. That's what Joshua wanted. He wants them to continue to follow through. Now, I have had the privilege to see this happen in our church many times, to see people follow through. And I just wanted to commend a couple examples publicly to say, good job. Uh, over the last two summers, 
I've taught a class in our Renovation U summer classes about studying the Bible for yourself and how to do that really well. And both of the last two summers, I had a couple, uh, two different couples, that had just had babies and still made it a point to come to my class. Right? The first, last summer, a couple, as soon as they got home from the hospital, that day, they opened their computer, they zoomed into my class to make sure they were there to learn how to study the Bible. And they learned a lot about how to do that in a way that will affect their family for generations to come, hopefully. It was really encouraging. And then just this last summer, I had another couple in my class. One would be rocking the stroller. The other one would be taking notes, and they'd switch off. It was awesome. You know, these young families faced a major life change that for many people is a choke point, where everything gets focused on one thing, and it's not, it's not class. But they put God first in their family, and they found a way to stay committed to following through on studying his word. And I found it very encouraging to see those young families doing that in such, such a tangible way. I just wanted to commend that uh, publicly. And, and, and I think it brings us all to that question of what major life change are we facing that we need to follow through on? Which one is coming possibly? And are we prepared for it? Right? Or maybe there's this, this hard place that you're facing. Maybe it's not a major life change. Maybe it's something else. But that you know you need to follow through on and you're not. Maybe it's been years. Maybe it's been decades that you've been at this place where you need to follow through on following God and you just resisted, resisted, hit your head on that board time and time again. And it hurts. And you know you need to follow through. I think when we read Joshua chapter 22, that's what we have to think about. Is where are we not being fully committed to the Lord? Where do we need to be reminded to be committed to the Lord the same way the two and a half tribes did? So let's continue reading and uh, see what happens. So the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh, they're all headed home now. And this is what happens starting in verse 10. It says, When they came to Gililoth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites, that's the other nine and a half tribes, heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gililoth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Whoa, that escalated quickly, right? Jeez, what happened? Well, you see what happened is that the nine and a half are assuming that since the two and a half have built this unauthorized new altar over there, something's not right. God authorized a certain altar. This is where we worship. They must be doing something wrong, right? They must be worshiping some pagan idol. Maybe it's the, whatever God has worshiped on the other side of the river over there. But this is not right. And they take it very seriously, and so they gather to battle. Because back in Deuteronomy 13, God told them, whatever city starts to lead you astray, destroy that city, because it will spread to the rest of the community. And so they gather for war to take God very seriously on that point. They've learned through very difficult times in the past to take God seriously on that. And so they gather for war because of what they assume might be going on over here. And before they go attack and just kill everyone, they send some leaders to go over there and verify and get clarity on what they think might be going on. So let's keep reading and see what happens on verse 13. So the Israelites, that's the nine and a half, sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family, 
division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? That's another time when they started to worship idols and a plague broke out and killed thousands of them in judgment of that idolatry. Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. Are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regards to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. And there we get the second example here, Achan. Uh, Pastor David preached on Achan a few weeks back. Achan stole some plunder from a city they had destroyed, Jericho, after God told them not to take any plunder. And several people died uh, as a part of the judgment of that sin in their next battle, and they lost their next battle. So it's a very serious thing to happen. And I think what the leaders of the nine and a half are doing here is pointing out the communal nature of sin, the communal aspects of sin, that sin affects our community. Even the ones you think are just personal and private, it never, it, it never is. If it's just some secret thought or desire in your heart, and you think, well, this doesn't affect anyone else but me, it does. It affects the people around you. It affects your community. Sin never happens in a vacuum. It never happens in isolation. It always affects the community. And so we have to take that seriously. And I think it might be surprising to our modern ears to hear that they're ready to go to war over this. You know, they were just on the same side not too long ago, and now they're ready to go attack their own people. Shouldn't they be unified over some common history or something, or, you know, or unified as God's people and just say, well, you do you, we do us. Maybe that's an option. Or maybe they just say, we'll just cut ties and you crazy people over the river do your thing. But no, they're ready to go to a war over it. And that's because they knew that unity over just a name or unity for unity's sake is not worth fighting for. It's not worth going after. Unity in God's truth is worth fighting for. That is the unity worth gathering around. Not unity for unity's sake. That's not worth anything. Don't fight for unity. Fight for unity in God's truth. That is what's worth going after. It's not just enough to say, well, we're related, so let's keep the peace. Instead, they say, if you're not putting God first, you have already separated yourself from us. You have done that. And it's serious enough that they want to go to war over it. And I think that we see similar things like this today. Uh, and I have two examples that I'd like to, to put forth. The first way I, we kind of see this today in our culture, and it's a broad application, is when it comes to churches that call themselves Christian, but they do not believe the truth and authority of the Bible. You know, they say, we follow Christ, but then they twist the words of Christ to mean something else, to say something else. They don't actually believe what he said. They don't believe that the Bible is God's perfect and authoritative word. For their people, and yet they call themselves Christian churches, but they don't believe what Christ said. Instead, they preach whatever is popular in the culture at the time. 
And when it comes to interacting with the culture, at Renovation, we take the approach of that. We will do what it takes to gather a crowd so that we can preach the clear and complete gospel of Jesus Christ to them. You know, we will do the, a giant Easter egg hunt. We'll do family fun day with big bounce houses. We'll serve great coffee in our lobby. We'll build a great building. If it b- brings a crowd so that we can preach the truth to them. And then if they reject that truth and they leave, well, then so be it. But there are churches that call themselves Christians that will do what it takes to gather a crowd, but then they will twist the gospel and bend it and reshape it in whatever way necessary to keep that crowd. And when they do that, they have changed the gospel, and it is no longer the gospel. And when they do that, there's only two things for us to do. And the first is to recognize that they have removed themselves from the people of God. And they've begun to worship the culture, just like the two and a half were suspected of possibly doing, that they have removed themselves from Christ's gospel. We have to recognize that. We only recognize that if we know his gospel well enough, which is why we have to know scriptures, why we have to study the word of God. And the second thing we do is we have to lovingly call them back to the truth. We can't just cut them off and say, you do you, we'll do our thing, and we'll just go our separate ways. That's not enough. We have to call them back to the truth. At some point, we have to preach the gospel to the churches and say, come back. That's not the gospel. This is. And I think we see this in the New Testament plenty of times. Paul did this numerous times in the New Testament. Here, one example is in Galatians 1, 8, where he's speaking to the church in Galatia. He says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. We have to take the true gospel very seriously. Only the one that came from the disciples, from the apostles, that really happened with Christ in history is the true gospel, the one recorded in Scripture fully. There are always people that call themselves Christians and yet twist the words of Christ. They've done it in Paul's day, and so we should expect they do it in our day. We shouldn't be surprised. We should expect it. We should identify the false teaching and call it a false gospel. And we should do it for the purity of the church, and we should do it for the love of those who have been led astray by some lie, some false gospel. And we should do it for the glory of God, because the true gospel is better than any twisted false gospel. It's better. False gospels lead to hell. The true gospel leads to salvation. So we need to identify false gospels, call them for what they are, and call those churches back to the truth of Scripture. Our churches need to not be unfocused by what keeps audiences, but instead to follow through on our mission to preach the clear and complete gospel, come what may. And that's the first application that I find in this text. The second and more personal application, I think, is when we as individual Christians start going astray, we need people in our lives like the nine and a half to sit us down and say, hey, be careful. You're hitting a hard spot. Be sure to follow through on your commitment to Christ. We need those people. I think this is where fellowship comes in and is so important. So often we think of fellowship as like a pleasant side dish to church. You know, if you got friends, oh, that's so nice. That's great, right? But no, fellowship is, that's a total misunderstanding of fellowship. Fellowship is imperative. It's commanded because we need one another to be able to do this thing together. 
It's an important part of Christian life, which is why we encourage so, all of our people to join a house group. We know that our faith struggles without community. Our faith thrives in, in community, but it struggles without it. And so we need people in our lives to help us follow through, no matter how well we've done in the past, because we can always go astray. That's why we encourage everyone in the church to join a house group when they start up in a few weeks. Whether you are a brand new Christian or maybe even just an exploring person, kind of testing the waters of Christianity, checking it out, or you're the lead pastor of the church, you're in a house group because you need fellowship. You cannot do it alone. There is a point coming where you're going to possibly go astray and you're going to need someone to say, hey, be careful. You're hitting a hard spot. Follow through. Follow through. That is coming. And so we need people, no matter how we've done in the past, good or bad, we need those people in our future to go forward. We need them to call us back to the truth. And I think one amazing way we see this in today's passage is in verse 19. It's where the nine and a half say, they say this, they say, if the land you possess is defiled, meaning that there's, if there's idol worship going on over there, to the point where you can't resist it, there's just too much of it, it's too tempting, the culture is too influential. If the land you possess is defiled by that and you can't stay focused on the Lord, you can't stay devoted, just abandon that. Just totally abandon it and come back over here. Come to our side. Come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us, but do not rebel against the Lord. The, the nine and a half were so committed to the two and a half to stay faithful to God, they were ready and willing to sacrifice their own land that they rightfully owned and inherited, ready and willing to give it up for the two and a half to be, sin, to be free from sin. And I think that willingness to be able to sacrifice what is ours for the, for the spiritual health of others is an amazingly powerful thing. You know, to be able to use, to, to insist on glorifying God with other people's lives, with our brothers' and sisters' lives, is a very important thing that we see in this passage. Too often we lack that willingness. And we tell people to stop sinning, but if it costs us something, then, you know, maybe we won't go there. You know, if it costs us something, then, well, you're kind of on your own. Stop sinning, but I'm going to go over here. But if, it, if we're willing and ready to sacrifice time and effort and resources and reputation into one another, then we're able to glorify God through their life. And that's a really good thing. And make them spiritually strong for the next time I need them to sacrifice for me. Because at some point's coming when I might need to call on the people that I've had the pleasure and honor of calling back to the truth in this church, which I get to do sometimes. At some point, I might need those people to come to me and say, Josh, hey, be careful. You're banging your head against a wall here. Come back to the truth. And I need them to be spiritually strong in Christ for me, to call me back one day. So we have to mutually build each other up in that. I know that in this next year, I might face unexpected life change. I might start banging my head against a wall, and I need my house group friends. I need the people I see on Sunday mornings. I need my friends, my Christian brothers and sisters, to be ready to help me when I hit that point. And if I need that, then I know you need that which is why it's so imperative that we insist on being in fellowship. We insist on it. So sign up for a house group with all your friends in three weeks. All right, let's continue reading and see what response the two and a half have to say to these allegations. Start reading in verse 22. 
Actually, we're going to start reading in verse 21. It says, Then Gad, or then Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt, uh, burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between you and us, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. This is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings and grain offerings and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Now when Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, that's a nine and a half, heard what Reuben, Gad, and, the, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Woo! It was all a misunderstanding, right? And I think what we learned from this section of the text is that confrontation, Christian confrontation, has to have unity as the goal. Reunification. Confrontation for confrontation's sake is not worth it's not worth doing it. Don't do it, right? We don't just drop truth bombs in people's lives and accuse them of sin and point out all the splinters in their eye if our goal is not to reunify with them in God's truth, okay? And we see that happening here. Their goal was to get them reunified as the people of God, to reestablish unity as God's people. That has to be the goal of all Christian confrontation. So if you have been in some kind of confrontation, whether as the confronter or the one being confronted, you have to continue to work to get to the end of that, to get to unity. Now, you never sacrifice God's truth in order to get to that unity. Unity for unity's sake is worthless. Only unity for God's truth or in God's truth is worth going after. So if you're in the middle of that as confronter or as confronted, continue to press forward until you are reunited, if possible, in God's truth, under his truth. That's what the goal of Christian confrontation is, unity as God's people. So that's the first thing we have to, we, that we can take as a, like an action item from today's study. Seek unity all the way through your confrontation. That has to be the goal. And if you're in some kind of confrontation, keep working toward that goal. The second thing that we can take as an action item for today, 
uh, is that if you're a Christian and you've been banging your head on some hard spot and you need to recommit to following through, then you need to do that. And I think the Holy Spirit's brought that to your heart maybe on purpose today to say, hey, you need to follow through on this. Maybe it's been decades. Maybe it's been just a couple couple days or a couple hours, whatever it is that he's bringing to your heart, and you know you need to follow through, and you've been resisting it, then what I want you to do is after or during the last song and after the service, go to the people at the prayer tables in the back corner for our prayer team. Don't do this alone, right? Tell them what the Holy Spirit's doing on your heart and pray with them that he would help you to follow through with your commitment to him. Pray with them. That's the second thing. And the third thing is to be sure to sign up for a house group when they open in a few weeks, when we start signups. You know, the, uh, the two and a half built this Im- incredible altar. These things weren't like some small little thing. Very big and ornate. Took a lot of work to intentionally ensure future unity. They went out of their way to make sure they had fellowship in the people of God with the nine and a half in the promised land. We need to take intentional, literal, tangible steps to ensure that we're following through with the community in our commitment to the Lord. And house groups serve that purpose in in a large way because they are a system that helps you follow through. It helps build community and fellowship. So make sure you sign up for a house group in a few weeks. So that's the third one that we can take as an action item. Lastly, if you're at a point where you've been here, you haven't been a Christian yet, but you have heard us preach about the power of this Jesus and you want to turn your life over to him and you're realizing that it is true, the gospel is true, that you are a sinner, that you are broken just like me and just like everyone else in the room and that Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. He came to earth to die to pay for that sin so you can have unity with the God of the universe, so that you can have fellowship and know him. And what I want you to do is after the service, myself and some follow-up team members will be over here. Just come talk to us. Talk about what's going on in your heart, and we want to help you through the next couple steps. All right? So the team's going to come out and uh, lead us in worship, and as they come on out, let's uh, pray for today's service. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God that doesn't let us uh, be alone, but you give us the family. You give us the church so that we can do this together. Um, we thank you for them. We ask that you help us to uh, not shy away from fellowship, but to lean into it and to see the goodness of it. And we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray,